Good morning. My name is... Uh, it is good to be back. We had a wonderful time, and thank you all so much for your prayers. And I was telling uh, somebody at the door this morning, uh, my brain Monday through Thursday was somewhere out over the Mediterranean, but it arrived yesterday. So... I am now back to full capacity, uh, so very excited about being together here with you this morning. And as Charlie was announcing, I want to encourage you to come on out for our 20th anniversary celebration for several reasons. One, you can come at 4 o'clock or sometime between 4 and 6. We're going to have food trucks out there. A dessert truck will just be hanging out. The foyer is going to be filled with memorabilia for you to look at over our past 20-year history, including, if you ever wonder what I look like with hair... There aren't many pictures, but there are a couple that you can look at in the foyer. And as Charlie said, we are going to be having a guest speaker Sunday night with us. I've asked my very good friend, Pastor Jack Hibbs, if he will come and share a message on God's faithfulness. So he will be here uh, with us for the evening service as well as Marty Getz. And one thing that didn't make it into the bulletin that I want to make you aware of is our women's ministry is going to be having an event here at the church called I Am His. And if you remember uh, some years ago, not too long ago, uh, there was a big push to free an Iranian or an American Iranian pastor who was imprisoned. And uh, the man's wife, Nagme, became uh, nationally and internationally recognized. And she's going to be here speaking that day, as well as Diane Coy is going to be here speaking uh, uh, from Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, formerly. Uh, so I know you'll formally, not formerly, but um, just encourage you. Did I just say that backwards? Okay, now my brain's over the Atlantic. I thought it was here, but apparently it's still on the way. But anyway, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be an all-day conference. There'll be workshops and just an exhortation and encouragement to women. You'll be hearing more about uh, this event in the future, but the I Am His conference right here at CCT June 1st. So mark that on your calendar as well. If you've been joining us on Wednesday nights, and I hope that you plan on doing so, you can read ahead of First Samuel chapter 15, and we'll be looking at that in detail this Wednesday. Well, on to the main event. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. Now, <clears throat> last time, if you remember, since it's been a couple of weeks, we noted, <coughs> excuse me, that after the division over John Mark, Paul and Barnabas had gone their separate ways. And Paul and Silas went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, the pair is going to continue their travels here in Acts chapter 16 in doing the same thing they had been doing, only they're going to, at this point, encounter a young man that is going to become very integral integral in Paul's future ministry. He'll even refer to him as his son, and other times as his son in the faith. And of course, we're talking about Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul says, You therefore, my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we know from Scripture that Paul addressed two of his epistles directly to Timothy. And in five of the other 13 epistles that are attributed to Paul, he, in his closing salutation, made mention of Timothy. So Timothy was a very important young man in the life of the Apostle Paul and Paul in the life of young Timothy. 
Now, there's a lesson for that in that after two great men of God went their separate ways following a sharp contention that arose between them, Paul is still, or God is still directing traffic. God is still ordering the steps of Paul. He is leading him to relationships that would replace the loss of those he had partnered with in the past. Now, the lesson is one we all need to learn. I'm sure that you have been to church before. I'm sure every one of us could say we have sat through a church service where we thought, oh boy, so-and-so needs to hear this message. Well, guess what? So-and-so is here today because it's you. I need to hear this message today. This is something that is applicable to every single one of us from our verses today. And I want to introduce it by a couple of familiar passages from the Old Testament. The first being something David wrote in Psalm 37, 23, where he said, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, verses we're all, we're all familiar with that have quoted, Trust in the Lord with most of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, resulting in what? And he will direct your path. Now, we mentioned last time in the sharp contention that uh, grew between Paul and Barnabas, one of them had to be right and the other had to be wrong. And speculations of the Lord taking one missionary team and making it into two are just that. Because the fact is, we see here, Paul went on to change the world and Barnabas walked right out of the pages of Scripture, never to be heard again. Now, from that, can we assume the Lord was leading Paul even after a difficult situation and a split between he and another brother in the Lord. Well, of course we can. Now listen, we're not going to waste our time this morning by spending it determining how to know when you're the one that's right and the other person isn't. Because the fact is, we all know we're always right and the other person is always wrong, right? Well, listen, what's even more important that affects all of our lives is how do you know when the Lord is ordering your steps? How do you know when it's him directing your path? And our title this morning is something we've all heard. It's something most of us have said. And it's going to open the door for us to more fully understand this familiar adage. Because we're all going to need it in the present. We're all going to need it in the future. And it's applicable to us all this morning. And our title is simply, As the Lord Leads. As the Lord leads. We've already established through those two familiar sets of verses that God does direct the path and order the steps of those made righteous in him. Now, we've all said this. We've all thought it. We've all heard it. But how do we know when it's the Lord and not our own emotions? How do we know when it's time to take a step into the unknown by faith and be assured when we take that step that it's God who has led us? What are the things that we should look for when assessing whether or not the Lord is directing our path and ordering our steps? Well, the psalmist also says in 143.10, teach me to do your will. That means two things. One, it's learnable. And second, that we need to learn it. For you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Now, Our focus today, based on uh, Psalm 143 and other 
scriptures could simply be summarized as walking in the spirit. We can title our time walking in the spirit, but we've already used that title. So we're going to focus on as the Lord leads this morning. We have multiple assurances from scripture that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us, that he will direct our path, that he will order our steps. So we can learn this morning from the partnering of Paul and Silas and the addition of Timothy to replace and round out the former trio of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark and learn how to follow the the directions of the Lord. Is anybody in this morning? Stand and read with me, please. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. And we'll learn as the Lord leads what to look for and do. Acts 16, let's pick it up in verse 1 and read down to 15. Then he came to Derb and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia to the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And Lord, we are grateful for these words this morning. Thank you for the things we can take away. And I pray you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. And we can better recognize when we leave today how to know when you're guiding us. And it is you that's speaking to us. Bring us to that end, we pray, through our time in your matchless word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our first consideration of knowing when the Lord is leading comes from our first five verses where we hear of a or read of a certain young man and a certain mother or woman. And indeed, we're told of Timothy being half Jew and half Greek. Now, 
It's interesting that the imperfect tense of the uh, word was here indicates that Timothy's father was probably dead and may have been dead for some time. So the influence in his life was largely Jewish and according to tradition, because his mother was Jewish, he was considered Jewish. Now, this was a young man that was well spoken of by those in Lystra and Iconium. And along with his mother, both of them were likely saved in the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas some five years earlier. Now, by way of reminder, Acts 15, 39 to 41 reminded us that the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, Timothy, it seems, as Silas was for Barnabas, is John Mark's replacement. Now, this isn't our point. But it makes a point. And this is a point that every pastor and every person needs to remember who serves the Lord within the body of Christ. And that is there are no irreplaceable people in the ministry. God can raise somebody up. He can raise up stones to praise him if necessary. And listen, we need to remember that it's not about us. It's about the Lord. When a ministry becomes about a person, it ceases being a ministry. Because ministry is about God, and every church has the sole responsibility to exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the pastor, but the master. Now, verse 3 presents a rather interesting reminder for us in light of the fact that the matter of circumcision in previous chapters, specifically 15, had become a matter of division within the church. And there were debates raging. Remember, certain Jews came from Judea and told the Gentile Christians, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And then when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to go to the Jerusalem council and propose to them what they had been teaching, a group of Pharisees who were now followers of Christ added to what the certain men from Judea said, and they said, not only do Gentiles need to be circumcised, but they need to keep the law. Well, having heard this, Peter stood up in the midst of the council and said, in conclusion, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we Jews shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. Peter said, Jew and Gentile alike are both saved by grace, implying not by works of the law. So why would Paul circumcise Timothy? I'm glad you asked the question. Now, the answer is given in verse 3, because of the Jews who knew his father was Greek, meaning they would make the assumption and be right that Timothy was uncircumcised. Now, in 1 Corinthians 19 to 23, we'll find some clarity on this very odd issue. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, or meaning not living without any moral boundaries, but under the law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law, meaning the Gentiles. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now here's the conclusion of the matter. Now I do this for what reason? The gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. This is why Paul circumcised Timothy. He wasn't establishing a double standard. 
He wasn't being the hypocrite himself. He didn't want the Jews to close their ears to the message of God because of Timothy, Timothy's uncircumcision. Now, I was thinking about in the past some of the wonderful experiences we've had over the past 20 years and times when we had traveled to other countries. It was interesting that, especially in Africa, we would go to a place where it was required that women have their shoulders covered. They could wear a pair of shorts or a skirt or anything else, but they had to have their shoulders covered. They couldn't have bare shoulders or the people wouldn't receive them and you weren't welcome into their village. And then you travel to another section of Africa and you could have the women could have their shoulders uncovered, but they had to wear a floor length skirt or a wrap in order to not be offensive to the people of those cultures. Now I have preached in places of as well, specifically in Romania, where it was required that the pastor wear a full suit and tie, including in one particular area of Romania, where the people had a superstition that demons traveled in the wind. So on this particular day where I was speaking in this church, I actually taught five times in five different churches that day, the people in this particular church, which sanctuary was upstairs, had all the windows closed. It was 90 degrees outside, and I'm wearing a full navy blue suit and tie, baptizing myself as I'm preaching. <laughs> but you know what? I did it. Why? Because it was necessary for me to be able to communicate the truth to them. And if it means on a 90 degree day in a hot and sweaty room, preaching the gospel, wearing a full suit, I'm more than willing to do just that. And that's what Paul did with Timothy. He didn't want to hinder the furtherance of the gospel. So he said, Timothy, even though you're a half Jew, half Greek, we know that your mother was a Jew and the Jews are going to say, well, then he should be following Jewish traditions. Even though it's unnecessary, we're going to circumcise you for the sake of the gospel. Now we know with a full Gentile, he would do the opposite in Galatians 2, 3, where we're told yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Timothy was half Jewish. The Jews would not listen to a half Jew who was uncircumcised. Titus was a Greek. No Jew would expect him to be circumcised. But listen, this is not where we derive our first consideration, at least not exclusively. We're told in verses 4 and 5 that as Paul, Silas, and now Timothy traveled through the cities, they delivered to the churches the decrees to keep from the Jerusalem council, which resulted in the same thing we read before. The churches are the saints being strengthened in the faith and new saints being added to the church daily. Now, this is the third time in two chapters we encounter some form of the word translated as strengthening. It's strengthening of the brethren, strengthening of the churches and strengthening the people in the faith. Now, this leads us to one very general truth, and hopefully it's going to create a bit of a paradigm shift for all of us in our thinking, because this is true for every person in the room and every person throughout the course of church history. Here's what we need to consider about learning as the Lord leads. Listen, seeking God's will for our life is more about where than what? Seeking God's will for our lives is more about where than what? Now, we can establish this through this set of verses simply by recognizing what Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark did. Paul, Silas, and Timothy did the same exact thing because it was the will of God to strengthen the church, strengthen the faith of the brethren. Now, we know that God's will is not limited 
Two, simply strengthening the church. His will also includes adding to the church daily those being saved. That's why God's will for every Christian is to go to the world and preach the gospel. Sometimes you'll have to wear a suit. Sometimes you'll have to cover your shoulders. Sometimes you'll have to wear a full-length wrap down to the floor if you're a lady. I've never been asked to wear a skirt in order to have the open door for preaching. But listen, this is true for all of us. So think about it like this. Are you ready? Apparently not. Well, here it comes. So just say yes. When wanting to know if you're supposed to take a certain job, don't ask the Lord if this is what's best for me materially. Ask him if this is best for you spiritually. I'm not sure if it was quieter in first service or second. I think it's a tie after I said that. Listen, when needing to know if you should move or change cities, don't limit your seeking of God to the personal benefit aspect. Ask him, is this where you want to use me? Is this where I'm to preach the gospel? Is this where I am to serve you? Because the fact is, we know the will of God. We know what God's plan is. It's the where that we often have questions about. And if you don't think we know the will of God, let me tell you what it is. Are you ready? Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's God's will. That you be not be conformed conform to the world, but rather you have a transformed and renewed mind. The end result is proving what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Here's the will of God. First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, for this is the will of God. What's coming next? The will of God. Thank you. You guys are on it. I had to ask first service like three times. I never got an answer. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would live in separateness from the things of the world. And he gives an example of abstaining from sexual immorality. Listen, this is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, Peter adds this in 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God. What's coming? The will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Listen, whether you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a deaconess, a parishioner, God's will for you is that you live a sanctified life that proves the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, giving thanks in everything, silencing the arguments and ignorance of unregenerate man. Now, where you do that, That's another matter. We'll talk about that in the second hour of our message. Now, I've been gone for two weeks. You're going to get it today. Now, listen. Buckle up. There are too many students today going off to college who aren't ready to do the will of God there. And they're getting pushed around by college professors. And they're living in fear because of ostracization. When the fact is the will of God for them is to stand up and stand alone for Jesus and necessary, if necessary, against an entire campus. Listen, there are too many families today moving from one house to another without any consideration if God wants to use them right where they are or if it's his will 
to send them somewhere else. There are too many today whose only thought concerning a job change is material, giving no thought to the spiritual. And listen, God has a general will for us all, and he will direct our steps to the where, since we all share the same what? You see, in our text, the names didn't matter when it came to strengthening the church, because strengthening the church was the will of God. And it was important to God what the people or who the people were or what their names were. What mattered to God was that he wanted the church strengthened and he wanted the church to grow. So if Barnabas and John Mark went back to Cyprus, I'll just grab Silas and I'll add Timothy to the group. And the same thing that began with the the previous trio will continue with the new group. So let's move on to six to ten. Smile at me this morning. Oh boy, that was that was bad. <laughs> six to ten. We want to do the will of God, right? Yes. Now listen, six to ten says, Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit didn't permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, we tarried around and wasted a bunch of time. And then when it was convenient, we went. No. What happened? Immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. What was their conclusion? The Lord wanted them to preach the gospel. They already knew the will of God. Now they got the where. They were sent to this particular region. Now, there's much for us to glean in this, because after preaching in Phrygia and Galatia, the trio decided to head to Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit said no. So they decided, well, let's turn north and try Bithynia. And again, they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. So they awaited further leading from the Lord in Troas. But the fact is, Asia needed to hear the gospel. But this wasn't God's time. And that reminds us the need doesn't justify the call. We need to be led by the Lord. Now, they just come from the east. They've been forbidden to go from the south or to the south or the north. But they didn't presume, therefore, the Lord was leading them to the west. They wanted and waited for specific directions. Now, think about this. Having strengthened the church in the city that stoned Paul and left him for dead, he now wants to head to Asia Minor or modern day Turkey and preach the word. Did Asia Minor need to hear the gospel? What did the Spirit say? No. Well, then he thinks, okay, well, I'll strike out in the other direction and head to Bithynia. But the Spirit said, no. Both areas needed to hear the gospel, but the Spirit said twice, no. And again, this reiterates our first truth. The will of God for the trio was going to be the same. It was the where that was in question. And specifically how the Holy Spirit restrained them, we don't know. Maybe it was a loss of the peace that we often use as a fleece to know whether or not we're to do something. That's possible. It's often how God would uh, direct us. And maybe it was through difficult circumstances. Maybe there were transportation issues. Maybe there were even medical issues. And some believe the latter is actually the cause that kept Paul from going in the wrong direction because Luke joined them at this point. Luke being a physician and the main author of the New Testament, having written all of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And the narrative here in verse 10 changes from they to we. So we know that Paul, or Luke now has been added to the trio of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, by any estimation, the missionary work of the team 
was going to have its challenges. And Paul had experienced some closed doors and innumerable personal difficulties. Yet, what kept Paul going in spite of now, which had to be a a hurtful breakup with Barnabas and the moving on of John Mark, which had to be the disappointment in his heart and mind of closed doors of opportunity. The fact was what kept Paul going is that he believed that God was in control. God is in control of your life today. God is in control of my life today. And that's worthy of more than what you just said. God is in control of your life today. Later in a Roman jail, as Paul's detractors were making false accusations against him when he couldn't defend himself because they were actually after Paul's followers to make them his own, he said this in Philippians 1.12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, bad things, hard things, difficult things, painful things, he says, they have actually turned out for the furtherance of what? of the gospel, because that's the will of God to further the gospel through you, to further the gospel through me. He would also tell Timothy near the end of Paul's own life in 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, you therefore, my son, as we read earlier, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he tells Timothy, listen, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. Listen, the Lord has enlisted us in the great commission. And this word picture that Paul is drawing is that we are to live a life even as Jesus did in John eight twenty nine, where he said, I'd always and only do that which pleases the father. And becoming entangled in the cares of this world and the things of this life will hinder us from that which God has commissioned all of us to do, which is to further the gospel. Now, what this reminds us of is that you can be completely in the will of God, both in the what and the where, and experience trials and tribulations. As a matter of fact, that's when you're going to experience most of the trials and tribulations, when you are in the perfect will of God, when you are where and doing what God has called you to do. The devil is going to raise his head. He's going to roam about like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. But we need to remember that no weapon formed against us will prosper. And every tongue which speaks against us in judgment, you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is for me, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Now, Listen, as the Lord led, instead of going to Bithynia or Mycenae, the group wound up in Troas, where Paul had a dream where he saw some Macedonian man in some type of position of pleading, asking and imploring Paul to come and help them. And Luke says, after Paul had the vision, we had the where to do what God wanted us to do, which was preach the gospel. Now, there's actually two things we need to take away from this. And the first is kind of a secondary observation, and it's just this. Here's something we need to note through this set of verses. The fact is this. God leads through, leads through closed doors, not just open ones. God leads through closed doors, not just open ones. Now, here's why we need to recognize this. Many times when God closes a door, people don't see it as divine guidance, but rather a cause for discouragement. 
or oftentimes people even view it as divine discipline. They think, God closed the door, I must have done something wrong. Or God closed the door, he must not want to use me. Or God closed the door, maybe he just doesn't like me. Or he's displeased with me. But listen, here's our main point, and here's the thing I want you to jot down and heed. Listen, when God closes a door, he has something better awaiting us elsewhere. This is fact. When God closes a door, he has something better awaiting us elsewhere. And I'll use our text to prove it. This is what happened. The spirit said no to Asia Minor. The spirit said no to the coastal town on the Black Sea of Bithynia. But the spirit said yes to the whole continent of Europe. And the word translated as concluding or the conclusion that they came to means to bring together, to coalesce or to knit together. In other words, everybody saw it. This is where we're supposed to go. Mycenae wasn't the place. Bithynia wasn't the place. But heading over to Europe, that's what God has for us. And as Paul and company considered the vision in the context of all that had gone before, it all came together and they knew that God was calling them to preach the gospel in Europe. Listen, these few verses, verses 6 to 10, record one of the greatest events in human history. One of the great turning points in human history. And we should thank the Lord for these verses. For as a result of what we just read, the gospel has made its way into the West. And God did move in Asia Minor. We know that because all the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 were addressed to churches in Asia Minor. The gospel did make its way there. But because the Lord led this group, Europe in the future would become a base of operations for world missions. And many countries heard the gospel because of what happened right here in our text. Even though very sadly today, Europe is a post-Christian continent by and large. But I want you to consider something. Paul and his companions had their eyes on two cities. God has had his eyes on an entire continent. They were looking at something small. God said, here, I have something far greater for you. You want to focus on two cities. I want you to go to an entire continent and preach the gospel. And let me remind you of Revelation 3, 7, where to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Listen to how he describes himself. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Listen, God uses closed and open doors to direct our steps. So be encouraged this morning. Don't view a closed door as a negative. Start looking for the open one where there is something far better awaiting you. Now, let's take a second read through 11 to 15 and we'll finish up. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out to the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira and worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, implying they were saved, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now, 
We've got in this particular section two women of contrasting life experiences that we'll look at next week. Lydia here, a seller of purple, and next week we'll meet a demon-possessed woman, and uh, we'll talk about the differences between those two and how the end result was wonderfully the same for them both. But the phrase straight course is actually a nautical term, which means favoring winds or even a tailwind. And what Paul is saying is that this 156 mile, or Luke is saying, is that this 156 mile sea journey only took two days. Well, we know from Acts 20 verse 6 that when they sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas, they had the same journey except in reverse, that it took them five days. Now, the same trip in reverse in five days and the initial trip in two days tells us this. There are times when you are in the will of God where there can be smooth sailing and there are also times where there's contrary winds, seasons of peace and seasons of travail. Now, Philippi was an ancient town. It was renamed in 356 after Philip II of Macedon. And with the expansion of the Roman Empire, it became actually a Roman city in 167 B.C. But its claim to fame was the fact that it is where the armies of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated in the Second Civil War of 42 B.C., Brutus and Cassius. And it was from this event that Philippi derived its character, reputation of Paul's day. And for its part in the battle, it was awarded the status of colony. That meant it didn't report to a local magistrate, but rather it reported directly to Caesar or the Roman emperor. Now, Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire in Philippi. The citizens were exempt from provincial taxes because they were a colony. And Paul and company were now in a total cross-cultural missionary experience, which would require somebody like Timothy in order to reach them with the truth. Now, Luke says it's the foremost city, and some commentators believe Luke was bragging about Philippi because that's where he was from. But we also find that there's a very small Jewish population here in Philippi of Macedon because there was no synagogue. Now, Jewish tradition required that when a city had 10 male heads of homes, that there was to be a synagogue established. And yet here we find instead of a synagogue, there was a customary practice of gathering for prayer and the recitation of scripture next to a body of water, be it a river or a lake. So as a group sits down, the women who were there praying and reciting scripture did what was also customary and invited the visitors to speak, and Paul did. Now, they encounter a woman named Lydia, and it's most likely that Lydia was actually a trade name and that she was known as the Lydian lady, a seller of purple. Now, I've always found this to be kind of interesting and borderline comical that this is how she is described. She was a seller of purple. Hey, you want to buy some purple? (laughs) Purple what? What did she sell that was purple? Well, the city of Thyatira was known for a famous purple dye that was very expensive to obtain and manufacture. And they dyed fabric, which was very exclusive and expensive because the fact is purple is the color of royalty. And people were label conscious in that day, as many are today, and wanted to be wearing a lot of purple. It was expensive, and therefore she was a successful woman. But because she was a worshiper of God, a Gentile who saw truth in Judaism, 
She came under the influence of the Jews and was therefore present at this prayer meeting. And the majority of those who were accompanying the woman were obviously either her family and or her servants. And Lydia had been prepared by God to receive the message of the gospel. And as she listened, the Lord opened her heart, just as John 6, 44 says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the Lord drew Lydia into the kingdom. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, 43, we're reminded to rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So the Gentiles were to rejoice with the Jews. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Listen, it has always been God's plan to save the Gentiles. Come on, Gentiles, save something. It has always been God's plan to save the Gentiles. And we see Lydia becoming a worshiper of God. And then she became, like Paul and the rest of his group, a follower of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Now, we also see the immediate spread of the gospel. Like with the Philippian jailer, Lydia's household is saved and baptized. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago about how monumental this event is, G. Campbell Morgan captured it well when he said this of our verses, and I quote, How little the world knows of the divine movements. Rome had small idea that day that the van of the army of its ultimate conqueror had taken possession of one of its frontal defenses, speaking of Philippi. On the day when Paul hurried from Neapolis over the eight miles up to Philippi, and came into the city and made arrangements for his own lodging, the flag was planted in a frontier colony of Rome, which eventually was to make necessary the lowering of her, Rome's flag, and and the change of the world's history. I want you to think about this. A Gentile woman at a Jewish prayer meeting gets saved, and the gospel explodes into Asia. Romans 11:33 to 35 reminds us, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid? Now think about this. A visit to a city where Paul was first stoned and left for dead. Two no's and one yes from the Holy Spirit. A 156-mile sea journey after a vision of a Macedonian, followed by an eight-mile walk to a specific city to meet a Gentile at a Jewish prayer meeting was how the Lord got the gospel into Asia, or Europe, rather. Now, he does things past finding out. Now, what that means is he does things past figuring out. We don't know the ways of the Lord. They're higher than ours. His thoughts are far higher than ours. Now, this gives us our final conclusion, and it's a bit long, but I know you'll see it is true. Listen, remember this this morning. Where and how the Lord leads may not be convenient or logical, but it will always be fruitful. Where and how the Lord leads may not always be convenient or logical, but it will always be fruitful. Now, I want you to think about the calling of the disciples to underscore our point. In Matthew 4, 18 to 22, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were what? Fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, the famed Boanerges, or sons of thunder. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they did what? 
left the boat and their father and followed him. Now let's break this down a little bit. What Jesus said to these two sets of brothers was, follow me and I'll change your vocation. He said, follow me and you'll be leaving behind your family. Follow me and you'll be leaving behind any means of personal support. It was inconvenient. It was illogical. Both were in family businesses. They simply walked away because Jesus said two words to them, follow me. But looking back, it makes perfect sense. Because these four men were part of a group that actually changed the world. Now, years ago at a pastor's conference, back when the Calvary Chapel Pastor's Conference were for senior pastors uh, exclusively, Pastor Chuck said something that reverberated through the room, and I think of it often and I'll never forget it. He said, you know what, fellas? Some of you guys need to quit waiting for your house to sell to find out if the Lord wants you to move and go plant a church. In other words, what he was saying is God doesn't lead you through the sale of real estate. God leads you by the Spirit. And you need to quit looking to fleshly things to find out God's spiritual leading. And he said this because where and how the Lord leads isn't always convenient. And sometimes it's very illogical, but it will always be fruitful. You know, I was thinking back even in our own history prior to the birth of CCT. There was a time in our life and ministry together where I believed with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength that God had called us to go plant a church in Los Angeles. And as we began to pray and talk to others about this, doors started to fly open. Provision was coming. We made a commitment, secured a facility, the Veterans Memorial Center in Culver City, and we committed to go at the advice of our then pastor for six months and see what the Lord was going to do. Well, I knew what he was going to do. He was going to start a church. I thought. We asked a dear friend, Crystal Lewis, if she would come and perform for that evening. The first night we had an event there in an arena that held some 1,500 people. We needed to and wanted to do some radio advertising in Los Angeles and were seeking to run some ads on KKLA and it was a little bit expensive for us. And then all of a sudden somebody comes up to me and hands me a check and says, the Lord laid it on my heart to give it to you. And it was for the exact amount that the radio ads cost. And we therefore ran radio ads for our opening event to plant a church in in a county or a city where there wasn't one single Calvary Chapel. Did they need to hear the gospel? Absolutely. So the event rolls around. We've got all kinds of people from our home church traveling up there, uh, new convert counselors, ushers, security people. Everybody went with us, and the 1,500-seat arena was packed with 200 people. But we committed to go. And we began to teach a study Every Saturday night. Many of the times, not one person would show up. Even though as many as 35 people from our church would make the 70-mile one-way drive to support what we thought God was doing. And we went every, even though there were many times I didn't want to go when Saturday rolled around. There were times I said to the group when no one from Los Angeles showed up, thank you all for coming. 
And rather than take your time, you can just start the journey back home because we have church tomorrow. And every time I felt that way, somebody said, hey, wait a minute. We came here to hear a message. You get up there and preach. And listen, God had something different in mind. He opened doors, opened doors, opened doors. And then when we got there, he closed doors, closed doors, closed doors. And the reason he did that was to prepare me for the better thing that he was going to do. And it's called CCT. But listen, 20 years later, right around the corner from the Veterans Memorial Center, where we met for six months on a Saturday night, there is now from the same church, somebody I've known for 30 years who went there and planted a church called called Core Church. And it is one of the fastest growing churches, not just in L.A., but in the country. Right around the corner. So just like Asia Minor, the Lord said no to Paul, but later was going to send John and others in that direction. And he established churches there. So listen, we can't view closed doors strictly as negatives. God is leading us in a direction. His will doesn't always make sense to us. Sometimes it's illogical and it's certainly much of the time very inconvenient. But it's always fruitful. After all, Jesus said in John 15, 1 to 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he does what? Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. If you want to bear fruit, why would you cut something back? Because that's how you bear fruit. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense, but it's true. And Jesus went on to say, I do that so it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. Now think about the principle of pruning. It just doesn't make sense, but it's true. You cut back to bear more fruit. This is exactly how fruit production is increased, both literally and spiritually. Now, remember this morning, if you're wanting to know God's will for your life, it's more about the where than the what. The what's pretty clear. The what is and always will be the same. Go to the world and preach the gospel while living a sanctified life, proving the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God, silencing those who are unregenerate in their ignorance. But we also know in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Please read the next words with me, the next six words. And you are not your own. Why? You were bought with a price. What was that price? It was blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Who's the owner? Which are God's. Now, recognize he's going to guide you through closed and open doors of opportunity to a place that may require some things that are neither convenient or logical. But they will always be fruitful because that is God's primary concern about your life and mine, that we bear fruit. So in seeking his will, the question is not, Lord, would you have me eat here or there, buy this or that, move here or move there? The question is, where can I bear fruit for your kingdom? Because this is your will 
for me and all God's people said, Amen. And Father, again, we are so grateful for this encounter. Lord, thank you that you show us through Paul and the split with Barnabas that you can use us after a dispute, uh, even a strong contention. And Lord, you continue, continue to guide and direct us. And when you close the door, it doesn't mean we've been cast off. It just means we've been redirected. And redirected to something far more marvelous than we are able to ask or think. So we thank you for these exceedingly great and precious promises that we have in and through your word. And Lord, may we not just hear them, but may we heed them and embrace them as our own as you direct our path. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just save us and say, see you when you get here. But you order our steps. You guide us through closed and open doors, through things that don't make sense and are hugely inconvenient at times, to get us to the place where you, as you did through this very scene we read today, brought the gospel to an entire continent of people that is still bearing fruit to this day. So we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we've had today to come to an understanding of how you lead. May we never forget these things, and more importantly, may we always apply them to life. We give you thanks in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Hey, i got to tell you, it's a pretty exciting time to be alive. Amen? I believe Jesus could come back at any minute. I believe that it's possible he could come back before our 20th anniversary. I don't think he's worried about the food trucks. Not too sure about the dessert truck, but I don't think he's worried about the food trucks. But the fact is, there is coming a moment in time that's described as a moment in a twinkling when we're all going to be changed. We're going to put on immortal incorruptibility, meaning we're going to be in a condition that we do not now enjoy, a condition of perfection, and we're going to be like that forever. And I say that for this reason. I think we're running out of time. So much as we often see Paul and his love of athletic metaphors tell us not just to run with endurance, but to finish the race and don't waste our time like a shadow boxer beating the air and running in vain. But rather, let's finish strong. Let's, as we are ending our race, let's use that reserve energy, that kick, whether it be a situation that's convenient or logical. Let's make sure that our lives are bearing fruit. And listen, this is something that's always been on my heart since this church started. It's been reported from every group that gathers statistics within the church that 95% of Christians have never led anybody to Jesus. My prayer for you is that that would not be true of one single person who calls CCT their church home. Because the fact is, that's the will of God for you. So whether you're to change jobs or move or make this decision or that, the greater decision is where the fruit's going to be born for God's namesake and glory. So let's just make sure that, that we're doing what God's will is. Living a life that allows us the opportunity to preach the gospel to every creature and be faithful at preaching the gospel to every creature as the Lord leads. Somebody say, Amen.